Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Okay. We're just pinning things down here at the last moment, things that don't mean anything at all. But we're very, we want to be sure of these details that uh, do not have any meaning. Welcome to The Nose. It's our weekly cultural roundtable. Today on The Nose, we've got Rebecca Castellani, who handles social media marketing and event planning for Quiet Corner Communications, and Sam Hatch, who co-hosts The Culture Dogs, Sunday nights on WWUH. I believe it's at 8 p.m. And I don't know exactly sure what we have on at 8 p.m., but as long as it's not hosted by Jesse Thorne, I feel like I, it's okay to recommend watching something else. If it was, if it was Jesse Thorne's show, I would, I'd be scared. Uh, all right, so they're both uh, here. They're with us a little bit later in the show. We're going to talk about a current vogue, particularly among like supermodels and people who look like supermodels. Uh, for but I think also among sort of millennials, among Generation Z, for these huge water bottles, like 64 ounces, they have like handles on them and stuff like that. Also, what happened to all those Netflix discs that used to come to your house? They had over 100,000 titles, allegedly the biggest uh, video DVD li- library in the world. And now they ship like 12 of them a year or something. Actually, that's not true. They have 2.7 million disc-only uh, subscribers, I believe. But still, whatever happened to all those other discs? Anyway, that leads to other things, leads to other conversations. But we're going to begin in the world of cinema. We're going to begin with, okay, I know I've been saying the title wrong all week. Because <laughs> I feel like if I get two, both elements of the title right, it's not important what, what order they're in. To me, anyway. And it's also not important whether it's Kong or King Kong. But I believe, I believe now that it's Godzilla versus Kong. That's the Do name you, of the movie. That is correct, Sam, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> You're uh, uh, on the right track. It's the only first time I've ever done an episode of The Nose where I was not 100% sure what the title of the movie was we were discussing. <laughs> but it seems to me that the title and the plot summary are basically the same thing. Uh, however, we are going to kind of veer out of the movie's own lane and play a little clip of two people talking, which is like not a highly featured aspect of this movie, but you're going to hear two very good actors, uh, Rebecca Hall as Eileen Andrews and Alexander Skarsgård as Nathan Lind. They're both scientists of some kind. Power source in hollow earth? Sounds nuts, Nathan, even for you. It's there. We just need Kong to bring us to it. The second you take Kong out of containment, Godzilla's going to come for him. You said you can't keep him here forever. No. Our meddling has already wreaked havoc on Kong's habitat. No way am I letting you drag him halfway across the world to use him as a weapon. No, not as a weapon, as an ally to protect us, lead the way down there. What even makes you think that he'll go in? You always believed that Skull Island was like hollow earth come to the surface, right? And that's where Kong's ancestors came from. Mm -hmm. Through the entrance in Antarctica, we could help him find a new home. He could save ours. Hers. That power source may be our only hope. We gotta stop Godzilla. This is our only chance. We have to take it. Okay. Yes. All right. But when it comes to Kong, what I say goes. <laughs> you name the terms. Thank you. You won't regret this. Mm, I already regret this. Uh, I like you sort of in the middle of that where Rebecca Hall's character goes, mm-hmm. Kind of like she's like, <laughs> 
<laughs> like, check, the, checked out. Check, check the audience, see if they're buying any of this. Um, all right. So uh, nonetheless, this is a movie that people are really enjoying. It's also making insane amounts of money. Uh, not only here, but in China. Uh, and uh, it's even getting some pretty good reviews. So, um, but before we talk about some of the positive aspects of it, uh, Rebecca, it, it does, I think you share this, it's even listening to that clip. Those are two really good actors. I've seen both of them in really good roles. And it's like they're not even really trying. They're just kind of saying the words that are in the script. Yeah, I don't know what's worse, the writing or the delivery, but it's not great. And that's just pretty much the movie. I mean, there is no dialogue in any point of this movie that I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a poignant moment. It's just a lot of like, uh-huh, that's weird. Why are we doing that? It almost seems like they're at a table read. And they're just kind of like having a couple beers going through it. It's it's bizarre. It, the the writing left a lot to be desired. You know, the effects are cool. You know, mm. if it was just Godzilla and Kong going at it for the whole movie, I probably wouldn't have as many complaints. But the characters themselves, the human characters, left me scratching my head. And unfortunately, you saying the two names of those characters are the first time I understood either of their names. I was just calling everybody by their either previous roles in other films right. that have nothing to do with this universe or by the actors themselves. Because I was just confused. And I should say, in preparation for this nose, I watched Kong Skull Island and Godzilla King of the Monsters, thinking mm. this would give me some sort of educational base going into this movie, and I was still confused. That so. might have that might have been devotion worthy of a better cause. However, yes. Sam, <laughs> yes. Sam set up the monster verse for us. In other words, this is this is a thing. Uh, I mean, these these characters obviously have their roots in movies from like the 1930s, in the case of yep. King Kong, and 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 a little bit later for Godzilla. But there is very recently this much more compact series of movies. I, how can we characterize it for people? Yeah, the MonsterVerse concept has all been leading to this film in, in particular. And uh, yeah, the Toho Godzilla films uh, you know, were a Japanese series that occasionally would branch out here in the States. We, we redid some of the earlier films and Godzilla 1985 was kind of a big deal in the 80s for a moment. But this was a much better kind of uh, joint effort uh, between Legendary Entertainment and Toho where we could get some interesting new filmmakers like Gareth Edwards and, um, you know, this one's Adam Wingard's done some interesting horror films and, and people that grew up loving the original monster films and kind of have at it with a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more tact and a little bit more uh, of a, a spirit that is hewing closer to the, the, the ancient kaiju films that we all kind of grew up watching. And yeah, King Kong versus Godzilla is, is this huge kind of tentpole piece in the history of Godzilla films uh, in the 60s, the original you know, Godzilla versus King Kong was a big deal because King Kong as, as a property, like you said, was was around since the 30s. So it was even much larger than Godzilla, uh, which, you know, nowadays they're both just kind of, you know, big properties in, in the minds of, you know, pretty, pretty much everybody now. But uh, it was it was a huge deal and it kind of rejuvenated the franchise. So this was this was, you know. The biggest that was the biggest film in in the uh, original uh, Japanese Showa series of, of films from the fifties to the seventies, and this one like likewise is is supposed to be the the big heavy hitter event, and uh, I don't know where it's going to go from here. It'll be interesting because that did kind of rejuvenate the Godzilla franchise, and we'll see if this has it carry on. But yeah, they decided to do an MCU essentially and drop these little post uh, credit little nuggets in the previous films to kind of uh, intimate that this film was was where it was all leading. 
Right. Uh, that's Marvel Cinematic Universe for people who don't know what MCU is. For uh, non-nerds listening to yeah, the show. <laughs> who, who, who knows? I, I also did want to say that, um, you know, if, if you think back, well, none of us can think back. But So my mother grew up in a very, very small Massachusetts town called North Brookfield, Massachusetts. Uh, and as a young girl, I think without any or getting any permission from anybody, she kind of sneaked off to the theater. I don't know how, if they had one in town or she had to walk a further distance. But that's sort of important to the story, though, to see King Kong. Uh, so this would have been in 1933. And she was wow. a somewhat frivolous uh, young girl. Uh, and she was so terrified that she could not walk home. Uh, and um, her parents were busy. They had a big family that, you know, uh, and uh, somebody had to call uh, her father uh, to drive and get her, uh, and uh, he was not happy. Um, <laughs> but she was, like, that afraid of King Kong. And and I, I think, you know, if you sort of think about what – we're just so bombarded with stuff all the time now. <laughs> it's it's so hard to make an impression on us. No wonder they have to go to these extremes. But, you know, in 1933, just a big old monkey, you know, it's just like that's <laughs> really scary. Um, you know, Rebecca, one thing I think that you um, kind of honed in on too is one of the ways that they try to humanize this is to sort of have – uh, a group of Shakespeare's uh, rude mechanicals uh, in the uh, form of, uh, uh, well, first of all, of Brian Tyree Henry, best known as Paperboy from Atlanta, uh, and uh, Millie Bobby Brown, right? She's one of them. Uh, and then the kid from Hunt for the Wilder People, I'm doing what you do now. <laughs> like, Ricky Baker. What's, what's he his, is Ricky Baker. Right, right. Yes, that's not his real name, though. That's his, no. Um, so, um, and and so so they're sort of off doing this whole other thing, and and they are kind of and they and Brian Tyree Henry is like really funny just saying anything, and he's kind of yeah. this weird conspiracy nut uh, and with a podcast with a podcast, uh, <laughs> and and Coach Taylor is always berating his daughter, saying it's that damn podcast, uh, <laughs> putting ideas in your head, um, which is really great because like the movie has already acknowledged the existence of Godzilla. You know, but the but it's that damn podcast putting ideas in your head. Um, but I don't know. I mean, how, how, Rebecca, how well did that work? The kind of rude mechanical uh, parallel semi-comic story. It worked in moments when it was funny. It was, you know, comic relief. Certainly, as you you know pointed out, the rude mechanical element adds some peaks and valleys when you're dealing with just a lot of CGI and a lot of intensity and a lot of, you know, stilted dialogue. It's nice to have kind of a comedic break. But I also felt sometimes the breaks came at awkward moments that I felt like I was, I was maybe things were cut around it that weren't lending itself well to the transitions. Um, this was not Millie Bobby Brown's finest performance, in my opinion. I, uh, I didn't, think she really added too much to what was going on I think that you know there were elements of it that I, I definitely laughed out loud at like towards the end they were able to thwart one of the baddies by spilling alcohol on a keyboard and I'm like that's that's relatable content we've all destroyed a computer by accidentally dumping alcohol on it but you know it was it was definitely something that made me laugh which I needed during this movie because it was just so it's hard for me to say monotonous, but that's the kind of the word that comes to mind. And it, it seems like an ill-fitting description for a movie that is this large scale and there's so much violence and, and tension and all of that. But it, it was something that at least permeated some of that and gave me you know, more of a sense of the characters, which I, I cannot say the same for literally any other group of characters that were going around besides you know, the sweet 
girl, there's a there's a deaf child that communicates with Kong. She was a lovely actor and gave a fantastic performance, I thought, without yes. having spoken a single word. But it, it was it was an interesting choice. I mean, I, I liked I liked it when it worked and I didn't like it when it was just kind of seemed gratuitous. They needed to switch tones and they did so by kind of being like, well, these three bumbling fools are going to go down an elevator shaft and ooh and ah at some gore. <laughs> right. So I, I have to say that I I mean, I know Rebecca watched part of it again, too, and I watched part of it today again for, for the second time. This time, see, I'm kind of letting go of a little, some of my expectations. So now I'm like understanding don't the, this dialogue is not going to be great. It's not a great script, you know. And don't, don't don't be looking for all this other stuff. And and I would I think I sort of get why people like it now. But maybe you could put into words why people like it. Assuming that that's something I, I don't even actually know your full sentiment about this. Yeah, I mean, going into the film, I wasn't. Yeah, any of these newer Godzilla films that have come out here in the states, I'm not really expecting much in terms of character. Though Gareth Edwards' film, yeah, his Godzilla film from what 2014, had a, a decent amount of character in it. But by the time you get to this one, this is essentially the wrestling match that you're you're paying to see, and yeah. you don't really need that much else in the way. In fact, we're mentioning Lance Reddick, who is you know a great actor and a lot of great stuff. I love him in Bosch and you know, Lost and Tons of other things. The Wire. Uh, is, the Wire. Should we? Should we? Yeah, say there's the a wire? show called The Wire. I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's in this film and, and and just completely gets kicked to the curb. But um, a lot of the the older Godzilla films had just have these kind of interminable scenes of either military men and scientists just talking forever. And um, you know, the director decided that he was part of one of those scenes. You know, working with Kyle Chandler's character and running this agency that's involved in tracking these titans as they call godzilla and, and kong in this film but uh they realize that that stuff's gonna really just drag the film down and, and get in the way of another brawl so they yeah i guess smartly just have a a this uh, triumvirate of characters for each team team kong and team godzilla and they all each have their yeah, most of the time they're just there to shepherd one character from one part of the world to the other and or just stare in awe um <laughs> But yeah, uh, the uh, the, uh, the little girl there, she was actually fantastic. As Rebecca mentioned, uh, Kaylee Huddle uh, plays this this girl is always expressive, and she's always in some sort of, you know, state of sadness or, or um, just distress over what's going on with King Kong. So she certainly helped humanize Kong as a character. Uh, but other than that, yeah, it's just a lot of Roland Emmerich style, Michael Bay style uh, shenanigans. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I do wish that Julian Dennison's character and, and Millie Bobby Brown had, had been given a little bit more weight. But um, in particular, them running around this secret government <laughs> lab reminded me a lot of Stranger Things season three yeah. with the secret under under mall base, but not as witty or as fun as that was. Yeah, but speaking of witty, um, Dennis McClendon is passing along to us on Twitter the Chicago Tribune headline for the movie review when Harry met Scaly, which is pretty good. I think you gotta. <laughs> I like that. You, you gotta like That's that. That's better yeah. writing than the movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the movie, like maybe the best line from the movie is "Dump the monkey," you know, which is like not not that great a line, but it's our, what the heartless, uh, pitiless. Uh, daughter, the, for some reason, or the villains in this family are people in this movie are uh, people who run something called the Apex Corporation, which right away you know it's going to be a 
not a good corporation. Uh, it's called the Apex Corporation. They are two Mexican actors, including Damien Bashir, who's like a really good Mexican actor. Mm-hmm. Their names are Simmons, which I kind of don't really 100% get, but maybe they you know, just didn't feel like changing what was in the script. But but again, and, and it is in fact his daughter, um, Maya Simmons, who says dump the monkey. Uh, but uh, Rebecca, one thing I did bring up when, as we were emailing around, and usually I'm not the one who wants to get political about, I think, I think you have to sort of take entertainment on its own terms. However, a lot of this movie is set in Hong Kong. And and I would argue that at this point, you can't just treat Hong Kong as a location anymore, uh, particularly if you're going to have some large, powerful thing walking around stomping all over it. <laughs> if it's not going to be a metaphor for China, you're going to you, – any more than you could set a movie in the West Bank without acknowledge, acknowledging it as a contested territory. The, and and it, it's more troubling to me also that the reason that they can be so – can just brush off Hong Kong, literally in the case of Godzilla, just brushing off Hong Kong, is because they're going to sell this movie in the Chinese market almost more than anywhere else you have to win in China to win with a big release like this. So it played in China before it even got here. It made $82 million in five days. But, you know, I wonder about that. I wonder about movies that are dependent on China's market having to adopt China's attitudes about certain things, including, I would say, in this case, Hong Kong, which is kind of screw Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I would like to think it's deeper than just Hong Kong has got, you know, cool lights and it was mm. it was visually appealing <laughs> to watch these two monsters go at it there. Unlikely. And then, <laughs> yeah, unlikely. And then at one point I was like, do you think it's because his name is King Kong mm-hmm. and it's in Hong Kong? Like my brain was really going to some weird places in this movie. And then I kept thinking, like, why can't these guys just fight in a field? Why does it always have to be in these cities that they're just raising these cities to the ground and they take out any of the, the human stakes by always having the gratuitous scene where they're like, we're having an evacuation, Godzilla's coming. And then there's a scene of people fleeing, but it's like, is there one guy that just like didn't get the memo? He had his headphones in and he was in an office building that gets toppled by one of these guys. It just, you don't feel the sense of location or scale. I mean, there was nothing Hong Kong about it besides the visual cues and I feel this could have been any city. It could have just been like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where they make up city names like Sokovia or something. Like it would have been just as served making up a random Wait, Soko- Sokovia is not real? <laughs> Sorry, spoiler. Sure it is. I just sure bought, an, I bought an airline ticket from a guy. <laughs> it's worthless, I realize now. So, oh. you know, Sam, one thing that I sort of wonder about, and you're such a, a student of this kind of stuff that I, I defer to you, but I feel as though, for me anyway, I like movies, like I really liked Cloverfield, where you basically don't even see the monster except a, like a little tiny bit, you know? Uh, and, and I really like Pacific Rim, which is very similar to this and yeah. is in a genre known as the kaiju genre. Uh, and but I think there, you know, in fact, when they destroy cities there, you really kind of get a sense of the city that's being destroyed, the city that they're in. They're sort of like they really kind of use the mise en scène uh, pretty well. And there's just such a really strong human dimension to that thing, even though the human beings are climbing into gigantic robots. Uh, there's a there's really a sense of humanity at work there. Uh, and and the, the villains also seem like kind of real, real people, too. And I, I sort of wonder about that. I mean, maybe there's just a monster verse market for movies where the monsters really come first. And, and that's what people want. And so who cares about this other stuff? But but I, I don't know. Is there a case to be made in the other direction? 
Yeah, it is interesting in the the focus on having only like six basic major characters in the film that that there there are like Rebecca said no city folk from any of these locales uh, you know kind of letting you view the monsters through their eyes mm-hmm. there's all that's kicked to the curb so it's going for a different tactic but yeah the Pacific Rim connection is interesting because Pacific Rim was you know director Guillermo del Toro's love letter to the, the you know Japanese monster movies mm-hmm. that he saw in his youth and it's interesting now that this film is, is kind of taking a lot of visual cues in particular from that I wasn't expecting the the very, you know, faux neon LED look, which again ties in with Hong Kong. And I think on the surface, the the, the major connection uh, and the choice for Hong Kong as a location was because of the the skyline and that kind of mixing in well with the, with the aesthetic of this film with all these kind of very bright neon lines and things like that. Um, but yeah, Pacific Rim is definitely a, a, a meteor, uh, more human story overall, but in terms of of this film, I I still think it delivered what it was promising, and mm-hmm. it it and Gareth Edwards' Godzilla film was a little bit murkier, a little bit more creatures in the mist, things like that, building on the mood. But by the time you get to this one, yeah, I think there's something to be said that if if they if they don't just deliver nonstop, you know, fully lit brawls between these characters, that there's going to be hell to pay. So. Um, I think and maybe there's room for both attitudes and approaches. We should say that this movie was released pretty much simultaneously into theaters and onto HBO Max, uh, where you're much more likely to go see it. And I think HBO Max also kind of has, uh, for Rebecca's convenience, um, all the other MonsterVerse movies in the sequence there. And, they do, and I, yeah. And I'm getting the sense from at minimum Rebecca and producer Jonathan McPants that if you had to watch one of these, you might be happier watching Kong Skull Island. Do I have that right, Rebecca? Yeah, yeah. That was my favorite of the three that I've watched over the last 48 hours because it was far more human. There was a lot less of a like grand scale destruction. It was all happening on the islands and none of the native peoples were harmed in the making of the movie. And it was funny and the music was great and the cast was stacked and you got a sense for who everyone was. Even the minor side characters, I was keeping track of everybody. I knew more names. That's that's to me really my, my benchmark here is like, can I remember more than two names of the human characters? Uh, so that would be the one if I had to go and watch one of these again, um, I, I would be Kong Skull Island. I definitely thought that that was the most contained, the most watchable and the most entertaining so far. And, and Sam, in this one, one thing that uh, one sense that I, I mean, watching it a second time, God help me. Um, I was <laughs> your fan. You yeah, love it, right? Well, what I was aware of the fact is there are really long stretches of time in which no human beings are involved, and they really mm. have to sustain excitement and energy, not just with sort of wrestling match battle scenes between these two titans, but but there's sort of you know at some point. <laughs> It's, we can't do a spoiler or anything, but at some yes. point, there's a sense that there there's more going on than just physical violence. That there is some other set of connections going on. And you know, oddly enough, I I think they you know it was weird, but they kind of sold their weird idea of that connection. Yeah, this film is loaded with kind of weird and goofy ideas, which I guess hues close to you know some of the spirit of some of the older films. There's always some. You know, scientist with a wacky notion, and this, of course, introduces this hollow earth concept that <laughs> you know, Skarsgård has to deliver with a straight face, and he's Ugh. very much like James Spader's character in Stargate. You know, just this goofy guy that is left out of every room, except he's right. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so there's all this, you know, kind of beautiful imagery stuff, stuff out of like Yes album covers and stuff in the hollow <laughs> earth. But, um, but, they are building on the Kong mythology as well, and kind of 
trying to move that character along and yeah again no no spoilers but um yeah i do appreciate them throwing everything in the kitchen sink at it and at least trying to kind of yeah as goofy as it is they're trying to build on this mythology and and kind of usher it along as uh as cringeless as possible but uh it is it is a gorgeous looking film i should say i watched yeah. it on my projector it's about 100 inches i had 7.1 surround sound and it 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 rocked the house I, i'm also wondering if they're doing the special remixes that they do for Blu-rays designed specially for home theaters, or if they're just dumping the theatrical sound mixes directly onto HBO. Cause this thing was raucous and lots of, you know, noise all around me and stuff. So it was, it was very, that, that really pulled me through. I should say, if anything else, it's, it's gorgeous. eye and ear candy. Yeah. yeah I, I wish I hadn't watched it on my laptop. That was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was sort of in between watching it. Just like, you know, I will say that I currently live alone with a dog and he did not like this movie. <laughs> really loud growling all the time, you know, and horrible noises. And I was also very aware of the fact that you know they they're not going to be able to do Mystery Science Theater three thousand with this because there are long stretches of time in which there's just monsters growling and fighting, you know, and there's like <laughs> yeah. nothing for the robots to talk about. Not uh, at all. All right, so uh, we're going to uh, take a pause there, uh, and so the movie is. Oh, what the, what is it called? Which, Godzilla versus Kong. Kong. I don't know why I can't remember that. Okay, Godzilla versus Kong. I don't feel Kong. so bad now. Yeah, I'm surprised it wasn't G versus K. Yeah, it sounds like an advertising. Well, thing. that's how I have to remember. They're in alphabetical yeah. order. So, um, <laughs> and uh, you could either watch that or you could watch the Skull Island one. And actually, uh, HBO Max, as Jonathan McPants is pointing out, they actually have some of the older stuff too. The you know pre MonsterVerse yes. stuff uh, available. So you can just go nuts, uh, and and believe me, you will. If you do this. <laughs> All right, so we'll take a break and we'll come back. All right, uh, we're doing the nose today, and uh, with us from the Culture Dogs, uh, which is on Sunday nights on WWH, is Sam Hatch, uh, and also joining us Rebecca Castellani, uh, writer and uh, thinker and scholar. Sometimes, um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. Um, so yeah, I mean, who knows what what her output's going to be after watching all those uh, monsterverse movies? Uh, they actually <laughs> sort of impaired her in some way but um so uh one of the things we're talking about is, this is the latest trend among the beautiful people uh these are gigantic water bottles these are you know refillable water bottles uh they hold a gallon a gallon is 128 ounces it's uh and i'm looking at pictures of like christy teigen and various members of the kongdashians uh and 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 they're all holding these uh, and cat pastor it's all the supermodels really uh who are holding these bottles actually no Cat, cat. I walked in here and Cat goes, "Well, I've got a, I've got one of those big bottles." She holds up this thing that's like forty eight ounces. I said, no, "You don't understand what we're talking about here, do you?" <laughs> <laughs> this, so, but it is a thing, and these bottles are being sold, and and some of them even have uh, motivational little things on Ugh. them. It's kind of like good, you know, you drink a little bit and you get down to good morning. You drink some more and it says you got it, and you drink some more and it says remember your goal and all this kind of stuff. So. So we have to start there, Rebecca. I mean, one of the ways – I have three different cultural working hypotheses about why this might be happening. But part of this is the idea of water drinking as a goal, right? 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, we should all drink more water. That's right. just a general PSA. Drink more water than you think you should be drinking. But <laughs> when I have, you know, Kendall Jenner carrying around a gallon of water, making me feel like it's a trend, it really makes me want to do the opposite. It makes me want to <laughs> drink a bunch of whiskey, not drink any water and just let and my die of dehydration in a right. gutter. <laughs> yeah. That's how I really feel. It's like the tiny purses. When that was a trend, I wanted to go get my largest tote bag and just walk around with that. I am a curmudgeon, proudly happily. But, you know, we all should really be drinking more water. I've been lugging around a 32-ounce hydro flask that feels like a barbell half the time to remind myself to drink water. And now I'm going to do it discreetly. I'm going to hide in the corner and drink my water so I don't get lumped in with uh, Chrissy Teigen and Kendall Jenner. Well, 32 ounces, you're not in any danger of getting lumped in. That's one-fourth of what they carry around. (laughs) I know. Uh, I feel I'm I'm uh, I'm doing just fine with my water intake. Sam, I believe you described yourself as mildly intrigued by this, which may have been a mistake on your part because we went, wanted to pick, picking it as a topic based on that. But uh, what do you make? That of was it? my stamp of approval. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just intrigued by the, the fact that it's becoming a thing now because uh, I, I, my friend, who's apparently a trendsetter, uh, who's uh, not a, a famous A-lister in, in Hollywood, is just a, a Mormon metalhead. Uh, we <laughs> went to a concert once years and years ago, probably about five, six years ago. And uh, he, I had to make room in my car for his, essentially his uh, like pulling springs bottle that he carried with him. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, yeah, that's just my water. I drink my water all the time. And I have to drink that every day. And I'm like, all right. So I guess I'm trying to decide if he was somehow the seed of all this. And, and uh, so I'm going to reach out to him and see if he's part of this trend. Well, no, where, he's, uh, if he's not paying 30 or $40 for an empty water bottle that he'll have to fill <laughs> over and over again, then he's not part of that trend. Uh, but, <laughs> so, but I am like Rebecca too, in, in which I, I do want to push back against it. I, I do love water, but I have all this weird kind of sensation of, of this love-hate relationship with water because growing up, I was always told I don't drink enough of it. And then as a young adult, I did start drinking it, but it was in portable you know, water bottles. And then everyone told me I was a horrible human being for destroying the environment. So I I have a feeling like no matter what I do with water, it's always wrong. Yeah, it does feel that way, doesn't it? All right. So I'm going to give you my three theories and you guys can both both vote on them. I'll I'll vote on each one. I hope I remember them all. I didn't write them. Okay. Godzilla versus Kong. Right. The first one is ostentation. So the idea would be you're at the gym. Like, you know, Kat actually now wants one of these bottles because, and she's thinking about people at the gym and stuff like that. Uh, And because you're at the gym and it's a sign that in some way you are serious about this hydration thing that's super trendy so and and obviously the people the famous people walking around with it are already into ostentation so that's theory number one Actually, I'll do them all, and then you can kind of vote on them. Uh, number two would be this is something we have essentially done to a specific generation uh, of people between the ages of, say, 20 and 35, uh, and we've made them anxious about water because, in fact, they're probably heading towards a future <laughs> where there won't be enough water. You know, they're going to be drinking water uh, in our in – our, unless we can find hollow earth where I think they have, like, a lot of water inside hollow earth. But if we don't find that, we're going to run out of water. So this is sort of anxiety made uh, made concrete or plastic in this case. Uh, And then the last one is, and this is because I'm teaching undergraduates right now, um, (laughs) that the uh, the Generation Z, millennials, people like that, they kind of 
unfortunately, I think wind up interpreting interpreting a lot of their life as a job. You know, it's like I have to do this job. This is a job I have to do. You know, I have to do this job. And they're very conscientious about it and everything. And I'm I'm hoping that they will eventually acquire you know unbridled joy and not necessarily feel the way that they do right now. But this is a job. And so for a job, you need a big tool. This is a big tool. All right. Those are my theories. Um, uh, Rebecca, you go first. You, you pick one. I feel like this current trend is definitely uh, A, ostentatious okay. displays yes. of bravado, <laughs> you know, flex your hydro homie, hydro flask um, for sure. But I feel that the uh, options two and three are more of like a, a larger cultural surround that, mm. you know, millennials and Gen Z definitely do feel like we have to do things job-like and you need tools for that for sure. But I think this specific trend is absolutely born of the latest it accessory just happens to be big things of water. It could be anything, you know, it's so arbitrary what's in vogue and this is just happens to be the latest thing. And I, for the record, I don't think Kendall Jenner is drinking a gallon of water a day. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, court. this event at the core of this is, is A, and yeah. then B and C might kind of trickle out as, as waves from <laughs> yeah. as seismic shock waves from this. We're going with conspicuous consumption of H2O. All right, so in the minutes that we have remaining, we have to switch to a, a subject uh, very dear to Sam Hatch's heart, and that is sort of what happened to the DVD library that uh, Netflix had at one point. They allegedly had more than 100,000 different titles that they could ship to homes all over the place, and obviously that became less unless their business model, although they still do it. They still do have some yeah. discs that they get as 2.7 million. It was one number I saw somewhere. Yeah. Uh, customers I was that, shocked to hear that. I thought it was done. Yeah. I, I, but but you have to understand, you can't stream if you don't have you know a certain level of bandwidth, right? You have to have yes. strong a strong internet signal. So if you live somewhere where there isn't such a thing, then you got to get the DVDs. So there's a group of people who would do it. The, and, and Sam, I bet you know like eight other reasons why people would want the discs instead of the, the streaming, starting with the fact that not all the stuff that's on the discs is available streaming for sure and and again the, the bandwidth issue too is, is important because we always assume that everybody has the highest streaming content I, I know people that are out in the middle of nowhere and they've just gotten dsl recently so we, we always forget about those people so yeah it's nice having something physical that you can you can access but in terms of of content yeah i uh i remember when netflix was becoming a thing and and my first friend that subscribed to it was complaining about you know the dvd on demand rental service that his dream was essentially a streaming one where everything that you could mm -hmm. ever possibly want to see was available at your fingertips at any time. But in terms of rights content and the legality of that, uh, it quickly became apparent that, that that was not going to happen, especially legally, uh, because rights are always in flux and, and moving back and forth. And uh, and then quickly, that that dream was abandoned by Netflix themselves. You know, they kind of shuffled the DVD rental service off into the corner, and then they moved into streaming. And they were very proud about all the films they had. But uh, that always devolves or evolves into um, becoming a content provider. And uh, they yeah you know, they would kind of license uh, a, a bit of a film category uh, catalog from stars and that. But they really don't focus on it, and, and nobody really focuses on it anymore. So. That dream is essentially dead. So, yeah, the idea of there's all these films that are out there, especially obscure little nuggets and, and uh, things that are not uh, in in print or, you know, there's no even way sometimes to find out who owns the rights to the films. But there are physical copies of them still extant. So, um, yeah, that's that's still a, a, a delight of film fans everywhere to, to have access to a library of that kind.
Eventually, if you want to watch certain movies, you're just going to have to go and borrow them directly from Martin Scorsese. He'll have them. <laughs> you know, he'll have them at his house. You know, Indeed, like, yeah. You go ring the buzzer, Marty. <laughs> What do you so, got? <laughs> so, you know, Rebecca, ironically, one of the movies that's doing pretty well uh, on Netflix right now is a documentary called The Last Blockbuster, which is, in fact, about the last yeah. Blockbuster franchise ever to exist. And it reminds I haven't watched it yet, but it reminds me, one of the things that I think we did lose is the ability to walk around browsing. You know, you could walk mm-hmm. around West Coast Video or a Blockbuster just looking at stuff, looking at stuff. And sometimes it felt kind of depressing and futile, just looking for something you hadn't seen before <laughs> that you wanted to see. But you could do that. And there's a way in which, like, you, have, nobody has any idea what's on Amazon Prime. No <laughs> idea what they have, you know, unless you know that you want it already and can type it into search. You know, and I think that's kind of true about all of this. You know, it's, weirdly, it hasn't resulted in a situation where you could easily stumble upon a movie. Yeah. No, I think that's my biggest problem with all of this is it's taken away the sense of discovery. If I'm looking for something, I can Google that title and figure out what streaming platform it's on and usually find it because I'm, you know, subscribed to half of them. And if I'm not, I know somebody is and I can get their password. But I do, I am nostalgic for the days of wandering through a blockbuster and, you know, oscillating between the candy aisle and the new releases and the old movies and, and picking something up that I had no idea what I was getting into and watching it. And that's what I've lost with streaming. And I kind of am more and more reliant on people that are more involved in the film world to tell me what to watch. Like I need direction, whether that's in the form of a review or lists or a peer that is tapped into all this stuff. But I, I especially find with older films, I don't have as much discovery of, of things that I would, like we talk about these little nuggets, these lost nuggets of film. And I feel really sad that there's probably a lot of great films out there I haven't seen simply because they don't get recommended to me via my algorithm on Netflix. And that's a bummer. Right. I don't know. Sam, do you guys do that on Culture Dogs? Tell people about movies that, you know, came out years ago that maybe they don't even know enough to type into the search field on Roku? Yeah, it's a thing we're into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe once or twice we've done that. Yeah, I mean, there's so many films. That, and like Rebecca said, unless you know specifically that you're looking for them. And then most of the times when you do hear about that thing, oh, there's a movie from 1965. I should really check it out. You search, uh, you search it, and uh, it's not available. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's it's for rent, right. uh, you know, for like five or six bucks or something. So you, you might be in luck in that front. Or you have to watch it with commercials or that sort of thing. Uh, so or it's, it's bootlegged on YouTube. And it's yes. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's like the last resort, the bootleg on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's often a very yeah, frustrating kind of uh, situation. Uh, but, yeah, Netflix watches you. You don't watch Netflix. That's always my big complaint about it. A lot of people mm. even have it with the auto start. So I have friends that that I'll see posting, oh, my God, I'm watching this thing. And they're like, I'm watching the same thing, too. We have the same taste in movies. And I'm like, no, you don't. Netflix <laughs> has the same taste in purchasers. You turned it on, and it was there, and it started playing automatically. So yeah. I, I, I do have this very vivid memory of walking with my son around Blockbuster one day, and we were doing that thing. Like, what haven't we seen? No, we've seen that. We saw that. No, we're not, we don't want to see that. <laughs> You know, and then blockbuster we, shuffle, right? We, st- <laughs> yeah. we we stumbled across this movie called Bottle Rocket. You know, and uh, what is this? What are, you know? And we took it home. And of course, it's Wes Anderson's first movie. It's Owen Wilson's first movie. It's Luke Wilson's first movie, and it was just terrific. And we were just sitting there going, "Wow, this is so good!" And like we've never heard of it. And you know, I mean, even back then, I was really trying to keep track of everything if I could. Uh, and th- that sense of discovery, and like we just turned into Wes Anderson fans. And you know, I mean, uh, it was just the beginning of a whole thing. It wasn't even just one movie, but it came about that way. And I do think that that's a very specific kind of pleasure that is much, much harder to obtain now. I, I think 
Yeah, it's like, I'd even settle for something akin to the staff picks at the video store. Right. Know, yeah. That interesting kind of things curated by a particular worker. Bring that back in some fashion in the streaming world. They should have like a Sam Hatch kind of dude or Sam and Kevin kinds of yeah. dudes yeah. who like yeah. pop up there and talk to you because yeah, there used to be like the paper clip on on Word. Yes. No, not like, like Clippy. Clippy is horrible. <laughs> Clippy is horrible. Um, We're yeah. lovable. No, I, like I was at Betty uh, Betty Ford with Clippy. He had a lot of problems. I was, I was in, <laughs> you should write a book. I was in rehab uh, with him. Well, we're not supposed to talk about it, but um, Clippy tell all. So um, yeah, I mean, there used to be this uh, in like either Avon or somewhere on Route Forty Four. There was this great video store. And there were these two Sam and Kevin kind of guys, you know, there. <laughs> and they would tell you stuff like, you know, if you were renting The Abyss, they would go, did you know James Cameron directed P- Piranha 2? He dropped it off of his, his his curriculum vitae. He doesn't even acknowledge that he did it before. All of his movies are about Vietnam anyway. And you go, wow, all of his <laughs> movies are about Vietnam, actually. You know, and it was like, yeah, you just, you know, you need, they need those guys like to pop up on Hulu and just talk to you. And anyway, we have to go. I, I'm babbling. We've got to go to a break here. <laughs> So we can we can so we can recommend some stuff on the other side. All right, all right. It's time to do some thank yous. We're certainly starting a crowdfunding program to buy a cat pastor the gigantic water bottle that Kylie Jenner uses. Uh, so she will feel complete as a human being. But she already is complete as a human being. She's a, our technical producer. She's on the other side of the glass for me right now. Jonathan McPants uh, is the producer of this and pretty much all news episodes. Uh, and so thanks for to both of those people and thanks for listening. And we've got Sam uh, Hatch here and Rebecca Castellani. Uh, and they're going to make some recommendations to you. So Rebecca, why don't you get us going? So I'm going to start off by recommending something that I know Colin, you and I have talked many times about how fantastic the Expanse television series is. And after this last season ended, I was really hungry for more. And I started reading the books that the television show is based off of. And they're really good. I've been like really pleasantly surprised by them. They're written by, it's a pen name called James S.A. Corey. The authors themselves are Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, one of whom was George R. R. Martin's assistant. So there are tones of you know, Martin's ability to world build, but with a lot more of an editing eye going on, it really gives you a sense of scale for the Expanse universe that the show, you know, doesn't necessarily give you. It is also just really affirming how fantastic the show is and how true it has been to the source text. So they're really great books. There's a bunch of them. Um, So if you're looking for a series to get really sucked into, definitely recommend the novels that the television show The Expanse Hmm. is based on. And my second one is a much shorter novel I just read in basically two sittings. It's called There, There by Tommy Orange. It's his first novel. He is a Native American writer. And the story is basically about a bunch of different Native American characters that have some connection to Oakland, California, and are all converging for this powwow that's going on in Oakland. And it's a really, really poignant, powerful story. The characterization is some of the best I've read in a long time. And my only complaint is that it wasn't longer and I couldn't spend more time with the characters, but it's a ton of characters. I think there's like 15 or 16 characters and the book is slim. 
And it's just a really, really fascinating debut. Uh, I believe it was nominated for the Pulitzer last year. Um, and I think he's going to write a sequel to it. But it was really, really <laughs> powerful and, and gripping and uh, an interesting read. Hmm, sounds great. Uh, Sam yeah. Hatch, what have you got for us? You actually spoiled one of mine. I'm going to recommend The Last Blockbuster, a film that's on Netflix, Mm -hmm. dropped a couple weeks ago, uh, ties in nicely with the uh, the Netflix uh, piece we were doing earlier. It's from uh, directors Taylor Morden and Zeke Cam, and it is an interesting tale of Sandy Hardin's store in Bend, Oregon, the last of the remaining Blockbuster rental stores. And while I have kind of like mixed feelings on the whole notion of Blockbuster appropriating all of the goodwill and nostalgia that all the and pop shops Mm -hmm. uh, you know that came up in the 80s kind of created uh this kind of turns that around again and is you know the last remaining blockbuster store is a mom and pop shop and uh it's really interesting kind of seeing how this woman and her family are keeping it alive and on the book front uh because uh, godzilla versus kong kind of inspired me in terms of uh, production design. I've been reading a, a bunch of great books that came out in the wake of uh, Denny Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049, mm. uh, including The Art and Soul of Blade Runner 2049 and Interlinked the Art, which were both uh, put out by Titan Books, uh, uh, conspicuously there, by uh, Tanya LaPointe. And then there's a new one that's dropping next week called Blade Runner 2049, The Storyboards by Sam Hudecki, which is all the you know, beautifully laid out storyboards uh, for creating the film. And uh, finally, because of plastic and plastic water bottles, uh, yesterday was Devo Day, and I'm a huge Devo fan. <laughs> and I recommend that people uh, go and vote for Devo uh, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think voting's going on until April 30th in there. Yeah. Akron, Ohio's finest. So besides Whip It Good, what do you do on Devo Day? Never mind. I don't want to. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I can't tell you. Yeah, okay. So, um, so, uh, yeah, he, I, I, one story that I had sort of floated a little bit earlier on, or actually the earliest morning, uh, is something we could conceivably have talked about, uh, involves uh, the uh, store. I think it's called ABC Carpet and Home or something like that. So kind of fancy furniture store down by Union Square. And this is the story of the CEO sending out an email to somebody saying, we, your sofa that you're waiting for has been delayed, except he sent it to like 275 <laughs> people uh, by mistake. And they all got, they didn't get BCC'd, they all got CC'd. They got, so they, they had like this reply all thing. And instead of outrage, they kind of formed a community. And this one woman, Zoe, Zoe Weiner, was, said she was looking to meet a nice Jewish man. And they were all kind of helping her out with that, too. And it's a very charming story. So I, if you were to Google even just Zoe Weiner, I believe it's EI, uh, and like ABC Sofa, you can get it. But for, the New Yorker has it in the talk of the town. The Wall Street Journal's done a story. It's just a very sweet story about people coming together and in a moment of irritation initially because they're all waiting for the same coral sofa or something uh, and then discovering that they have more in common than just that. Um, one movie that Net- one thing that Netflix will make very easy for you to find but I'll recommend it anyway is a comedy special by Nate Bargatze. It's called Average American. It's not as funny as this first one but it, and you have to really get about 10 or 15 minutes into it to really start laughing at it. But it is funny and, and he's this very kind of deadpan southern guy who – in addition to everything else, the the comedy special he's doing because of COVID, he's doing it outdoors for uh, an outdoor audience, and they're like they're in some kind of flight 
path for for they're either for helicopters or those uh, hollow earth uh, area aeration vehicles <laughs> that they have in uh, in uh, Godzilla versus Kong. But there's something going overhead all the time, and he does a lot of riffing on that too. And he has <laughs> he has like he's a very good spontaneous comedian. Has very funny things to say. So it's one of those things where if I told you any joke from it, you wouldn't think it was funny because there's something about this guy's deadpan delivery that you know just just makes it really work. And if you like him at all, then may definitely go back and wait the and watch the first one, which I think is called The Tennessee Kid or something like that. But um, but he's terrific. He's very funny. Okay, and so lastly, uh, to the point that we were making before about sort of movies that you either do or don't know to look up. And this is one that I know to look up because it's, I think I now have seen it three times. But last night, wanting something a little different from the monster verse, but with actual monsters in it, uh, I watched the movie, again, Gone Baby Gone, directed by Ben Affleck, starring his, uh, his brother Casey. This is, you know, it's hard to do noir, I think, that's in a more contemporary setting. Noir seems to like live, you know, in in the, the kind of Raymond Chandler era uh, of the West Coast, or you know. But this is Boston noir. It is really grim. It doesn't go anywhere happy. Uh, and um, and and Casey Affleck is spectacular in it. But the the killer performance is by Amy Ryan, who's just a great mm. actor anyway. She plays this mother whose whose child has vanished. Uh, and uh, and there's a lot of other subsidiary performances that are really good. But just in terms of sustaining the relentlessness of noir and <laughs> refusing to back down from it, it's really good. And, you know, I think, I, I don't know. I like Casey Affleck as an actor anyway, and I guess I like Ben Affleck as a director. It's based on a Dennis Lehane novel, and that's all I got. Uh, other than to say thank you very much for listening today, and special thanks to Sam Hatch. Listen to The Culture Dogs on Sunday night. Rebecca Castellani, uh, thanks to Cat Pastor again, and to Jonathan McPants. And Grayson Hughes is going to take us out here. We'll be back on Monday. Across from St. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very... Very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy. Like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking. Talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry. Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.